This is the Collective Nightmares podcast. I'm Marshall Smith, one of the hosts and the producer of the podcast. For Christmas, my parents were nice enough to give us much better microphones to use our podcast. And during this episode, my computer fans kicked on for the first several minutes. And in the past, that hasn't been an issue. This time, unfortunately, these microphones are good enough to have picked up that noise. And so unfortunately, what you'll hear in the background of the first few minutes is some white noise from my fans of my laptop. I hope you can ignore it, and if you can't, please just skip ahead. You really won't miss the vast majority of the conversation. It really only lasts about six minutes. Thanks for joining us. We're still figuring this all out. We definitely hope that in the future, these kinds of things won't be a problem. We're doing the best we can. Thanks for bearing with us. Enjoy. The Human Centipede 2 full sequence. You won't want to miss this episode. Welcome, this is the Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror, and my name is Marshall Smith, and my lifelong interest in horror is from the skepticism and um, suspicion of so-called normalcy uh, in comparison to... um, the deviant or the so-called deviant or so-called abnormal. And uh, I still, I don't know exactly why, but it's also because it's a a genre built on transgression. It is a a genre also built on transgression and what exactly transgression means is an episode we're planning to do at some point in the near future. My name is Laura Patterson, and Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado. And I've always been drawn to horror because I really think it's through our most horrific traits and our most horrific experiences that people have both the greatest need and the greatest ability to connect with each other. Maybe that's why we bond, is because we suffer through watching these things together. <laughs> uh, well, we've got a doozy today. If you are listening and have been uh following along um today is the human centipede to second sequence and wow <laughs> it was worse than i thought it was going to be by far did you have that experience too yes should we just say well, let's just say i like to keep the format of my history with the film is i saw it whenever early on after the first film and I, I don't know what I, th- I don't actually remember the first time I saw it. I do know that I was intrigued enough by it that I went back and I actually, I, I mentioned it at some point in a class I was teaching and one of the other students or one of the students in the class expressed an interest in horror and had also seen it. 
and was actually willing to sit down with me over coffee and talk about it. So I had watched it again and had taken notes on it. And I had hoped to write something about it or whatever. I never did. And then this is the, the third time I've watched it. And, uh, and I'm excited to, to talk about it again and, and see what happens here. So I saw it once before. I, I think the story that you told Marshall in the last podcast episode where we talked about the first sequence was actually right, that I think you asked me to see it or whatever. We, we somehow talked about it and I was going to see it, see the first one. And then by the next time we had talked, I had seen the second one as well. And I don't remember if that happened immediately. It could have been the same day. It might have been a few days later. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so I, had, I saw it after seeing and hating the first one. I watched the second one only because I saw a screenshot of what's the actor's name? I don't know the main character in this one. His name is Lawrence Harvey. And what has he done? Has he done anything else? I feel like that was another weird thing about this movie that he is so odd. And then this was all he did. Like, what does he do now? Is he alive? Let's like, see. what is he up to? He had been, his first credit is a short film from the UK that's called The Pizza Miracle. What year? 2010. And then this. And then he's been in a decent amount of films. And has a few still coming up. Oh, really? Nothing else I've heard of. He is in the third, the final sequence. He is in the third one of these. Are the others four? Many of them look to be. It's fascinating. His name is Martin Lomax. Or his character name is Martin Lomax. And that's all that the, there is for biography on IMDb. Oh, let me read. So The Human Centipede 2, full sequence, 2011, written and directed again by Tom Six. With his wife, Iona, Alona, Iona, God, I hope I'm, I'm saying that right. Uh, again, as, let's see. We have a producer credit here. Oh, yes. Uh, Iona Six, again, returning as executive producer and producer. And Ashlyn Yenny who plays one of the women in the first film, also returning. Oh, sorry. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, to, I'm excited to talk about it, too, so I'm trying to keep... So uh, the, the synopsis... or the I'm sorry. The, <clears throat> the synopsis from IMDb is inspired by the fictional Dr. Hyder from the first film. Let's start that again. Inspired, inspired by the fictional Dr. Hyder. Disturbed loner Martin dreams of creating a 12-person centipede and sets out to realize his sick fantasy. There will be spoilers this episode for the first human centipede, the human centipede for a sequence, the probably the third one, human centipede final sequence, and anything immediately. We anything else immediately coming to mind. Okay. And without further ado, uh, I will just continue or, or agree with what you started to say, Laura, which was, yeah, this was, for, especially for the third time, this was 
really difficult to watch. I was shocked that I'd shocked about, I was shocked about several things that I had forgotten happened. I can't believe that in the last episode, I feel like I want to go back now and edit what we said for the first sequence where I said that this was captivating and sucked me in and was so ideologically interesting. Maybe a little bit. I don't know. I started to question. Absolutely. I started to question whether they really had an ideological vision in this one or whether it just tapped into something I happened to be thinking about at the time. Because I remember, so to get back to when I saw it last, that we were talking, we were in the middle of a conversation about horror as a genre. And one of the questions that I know I was wrestling with and that we were talking about was the moral culpability that horror as a genre has just by nature of its existence. So is there some line and where is that line that you need to draw where you say that something that you put out there artistically really shouldn't be there because it may trigger, I don't know, awfulness in society when you unleash it. And so this film certainly taps into that argument and I'm sure we'll talk about that more today. And I know that you and I had a good conversation at the time about that. And yes, th this like this film does bring up that argument, but I'm not sure that was their intention. Going back and watching it this time, it was almost as bad as the first one in terms of just being horrible spectacle and just oppressive violence and oh, just awfulness. And yes, it looked nice. And the, the main character really was fascinating. And it still does bring up a conversation I'd like to have with you about the existence of that kind of spectacle and whether that is, whether there are moral implications as an artist and what you put out there, but, oh man, this was terrible. I can't believe I told people to go see it. <laughs> like I really do want to go back and interject in that previous episode. Wait, maybe I was wrong. I don't know if it was worth it at all. I don't know if it was worth it to go down some wonderful, what did I, I said like they had this ideological vision they were clearly getting at. I don't know that they did. It was a mess. It was terrible. <laughs> do you think so? That, it, that they had an ideological vision? No, that it was a mess and it was terrible and it didn't have, it wasn't redemptive of, it wasn't the benefit of watching was not worth the cost. I mean, I'll certainly enjoy talking to you about it. I don't mean that, but I don't know that it like ideologically absolves itself for making the first one. It's not like the second one really clearly laid out this argument. I, I'm remembering an argument, a discussion that you and I had. I think I had given the film credit for that. And although I believe the film prompted that the first time around watching it a second time, I don't know that the film deserves credit for prompting that so much as we just had an interesting conversation about the film. Like it was, it was, it was just as bad in terms of just awful spectacle and violence over and over and over throughout the film. And it was terrible. Terrible in a bad way. Well, it very, it was very similar to the first one in that it was just exploiting pain and suffering for you to watch for the most part. Maybe we can we can pull out some areas where that's not entirely true, but much more than I remember, much, 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 much more than I remember. It doesn't feel like it's speaking at some point. It just felt like it was, it was like a, a ratcheting up of like, okay, we've already done the human centipede. Now how do we make this worse? Well, let's bring it into the real world. Let's make this person have a sad story of his own so that now he's been abused and he's, I mean, we can get into some interesting questions, I guess, of like, is it his fault or what to what extent is he just a victim of whatever he was put through and he's exactly the person whose hands he wouldn't want this sort of thing to fall into and it does and here's what he does with it but for the most part it was just he was suffering his whole family was suffering his mom was suffering the psychologist I don't remember that being such a weird farce 
from the first time around. Like, I don't know what that even was, the psychologist being incompetent or immoral, or I don't even know what he was. And then all of the characters that get brought into the centipede are just there to suffer, just like the first film, in a different way, but similar. We're just watching them in pain, and we're just watching him murder people, and we're watching horrible violence, and we watched sexual assault in this one, which we didn't have to watch in the first one. It got worse. Did it really have a point? I don't know that it did. Well, I do hope, and in this case, especially hope that we can pull this together to sort out the film. And I still, or not still, again, watching this time around, I felt like there was enough there that it was a movie constructed to make an argument and to give us enough within the film itself to sort the argument out. And I still think that, how about this? From our conversation about the first film, I still think one of the most interesting questions is why make the film so, why make the first film, particularly if you conceive it as a trilogy, in a way that is so inaccessible? We can start with a lot of different things here, but one of them would be why that's so compelling to me. It's so compelling to me, the layers of opacity that he goes through or they go through. I don't want to discount her credit. I don't know if I said that before. This is also written and directed by Tom Six. Part of the reason we're revisiting this is because it was conceived as a trilogy. And I think that makes, we, I guess I, think that makes the entire project a much more compelling piece of media. It makes the project much more compelling, is what I'm trying to say. Um, there were... I talked about in the, watching the first one, I was sort of surprisingly uh, numb to it or put off by it. This, I was, I was right at like a nine and change of... of <laughs> I just don't know how much more of this I could watch without like taking a moment, taking a break. So I have two questions. Yeah. Do you feel that this one was more accessible? And my second question is, what is that underlying cohesive argument that you think they were trying to make? Because I don't think I caught it. I would be interested in both of those. Well, I think we need to sort that out, but I can definitely, I can definitely lay out some bones and we'll see if we can piece the rest together. We can see if we can flesh it out. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's accessible, or it's much more accessible to me if for no other reason than it's not subtitled. It's in English. Um, I don't think they started it as an intentionally bad film or like a satire of, of horror films that are bad, which we talked about again, the first, I'll just say, if you haven't listened to the the episode where we discussed the first human centipede, it will be really helpful for you. If you do, it would behoove you to listen to that first, even if you haven't necessarily seen the movie, but you've seen this and are, are listening. I don't know if anybody's listening. I, I, it's, it's a, this is, this was a hard movie to watch. I will just say first, before we dive in that, you know, you said, Laura, you said the first time around that you were, you had to give it some sort of credit, however minimal that it was so repulsive to you. And I will give this credit in that it was so repulsive and discomforting to me. And I guess torture porn films, I, I, 
I don't, I don't really think they're that great. Typically, it's not something that that's a whole another discussion. But the piece of this film, which is, I guess, really that most of the second half, or at least the last third, was basically torture porn, and it was really hard for me to watch. So, the reasons we talked about the first film being inaccessible were intentionally bad beginning, arguably intentionally bad beginning. Accents, multiple languages. I guess we were supposed to start it with subtitles. I guess we were supposed to watch it with subtitles, which answers a question from our first one because when he was, when uh, Martin was watching it this time around, he had subtitles on, and I took that as as indication that uh, that that was supposed to be the case. But nonetheless, just a horror film with subtitles is subtitles are enough to at least in America to turn off. (laughs) a lot of your audience, your potential audience. And horror, unless you're watching a foreign film, which I guess this is foreign, but it had English as well. So why are you doing all those multiple languages? And then we talked about, well, we talked about the the sterile clinical coloring. We talked about the very slow pacing. What else do we talk about, about making it inaccessible? I think just the fact that it had no morally redeeming character at all, that it essentially was just a torture film. And there's really not a lot of torture, and there's not a lot of action in the first film. I mean, if you're looking for a torture porn film where, you know, brutality is going to happen throughout, it's not an ongoing torture in the sense of, like, injuries and wounding. And and that's even that is an interesting distinction of so much torture porn is, like, I don't know, some sort of like this. It's with these rudimentary tools. It's in some crummy place. And it's without anesthesia, and it's and in the for in the original in the first film, it is sterile, and there's anesthesia, and there's a doctor who's doing it, and it's not pliers and knives and welding torches and you know whatever else. But I feel like I can make just as strong an argument for the second film being inaccessible as you're making for the first one. I mean, it's it's black and white, which is different, so there's some level of distancing there. The main character never speaks through the entire movie. So you're talking about subtitles, but at least we have dialogue from the main characters. In this case, we have none. And again, it's, it's basically violence. Like the entire movie is just watching him enact violence on people, which was similar to the first as well. So I, I was surprised at how very similar I thought the experiences were between the two. And in my memory, I thought they were very different. I thought the second made me think so much. Which, like I said, I do think it did, but I don't know that that was the film's fault so much as just something that was already in my head at the time. But the actual experience of watching it felt really, really, really similar. Yes, I, I would agree with that. Uh, for me, it was per- it was really just more so. And for me, much of that was, or or really for me, where, where it turned the corner was my trigger, my thing that I'm really sensitive to is 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 uh, is teeth. I, I have bad teeth. I ruined my teeth when I was a teenager. And so I've had all kinds of mouth pain and tooth pain. I've had all kinds of dental work. And it is pain unlike anything else I've ever experienced. Possible exception of uh, crushing a bone in my foot. And to watch him like hammer out the teeth of the whoever it was just sent me over the edge. And then the the uh, the rape is horrible. That's what I was most surprised. I did not remember was the was the rape. 
I do. Okay, and you're exactly right. That was my. That was going to be the next piece of what I my train of thought was, and that was my first question. I actually took notes on this because I was so sort of optimistic about this. Was why black and white? And yeah, you're right. So now, and we have, and I also wrote on here. He does not. I, yeah, you're right. I think he speaks the entire film. Never. Which is, which is just astounding. I mean, those again are just, uh, that in and of itself is really fascinating. And I guess for me, really where I want to start, which is where the film starts, is we start with a black and white sequence of images from the first movie, as you would watch the first film. And then we cut to our main character, Martin, watching the first film. And the first film has ended. It is the end of the first film. And when we cut to Martin watching, he is watching the end credits come up and he pauses it. And so what does that do? For me, that means that we have then, as spectators, are now put in... We start the film in the position of Martin because we are watching exactly what Martin watches. And and so we begin the film where the first film ends, watching it from where we've, we are in the same position as the protagonist of this film, as spectators. That's then separated to where it's not a point of view film, but we, other than this very beginning piece, and we then see, we watch the film, and... At the very end, we have the very beginning of the film shown again, where he again is watching the end of the first film. And then we cut to watching him in his little window and the little window in his cubicle. And then this film cuts. And so... So just to be clear, you're saying that this film that we just watched, The Human Centipede 2, both starts and ends with Martin completing watching Human Centipede 1 which presumably is something that we did as well, because now we're moving on to two. And so that kind of aligns him with us in terms of being a spectator of the first film. And even more than that, it's because we are aligned with him more so because we are, because of those initial frames or that initial sequence from the first film. So we are watching the first film as the first film would be shown on a screen. And then we see Martin, who is watching the first film on the screen, so we are, as spectators, we are seeing the same thing that Martin sees in the start of this film. And by doing that, if we didn't have that initial sequence from that first film, we would just start watching him as a spectator. And that, is that clear? Maybe? Yeah. Okay. And then part of the piece that's really interesting to me of that is for us as spectators, we are voiceless. We are silent and watching the film. And then he is silent throughout the film. So we, I think, are something. I, I don't know, but I think that is, that is very interesting. The sequence from the first film that we watch is black and white. So we know that it's different. We know that it's not, not exactly the same from the first film, but it is the same other than the black and white. And he sits, his job is as a security guard is he sits and watches people as well. So he is a spectator as well. And just as we are of films and he, 
that because it's security footage, I suppose, I guess we don't really know, but as I would imagine it, security footage is often black and white. And so he is watching his screens and watching his life, or he's watching other people go about their thing and do their thing in the same way that we're watching this, which is, I guess, maybe the best clue to the black and white. The only other thing I could think of during the whole film about the why the black and white was it does flatten body fluid. It makes everything that's body fluid in the film, because all the body fluids that we see are dark, except for some spittle, some vomit, it makes those all the same. Except did you notice the only thing that was in color was the poo? The poo was brown. Was it really? It was. The poo, as we're just referring to it. Uh, <laughs> when he gives the laxatives to the large human centipede. If there's poo that hits the camera, like our camera that we're seeing through. And also I think it gets on the floor and it's brown. I'm looking right now. It is brown. Or it is at least a color. And it breaks the fourth wall. So it, it is on the lens of the camera. It is on our screen. I mean, I find that fascinating. <laughs> so, so before we... I mean, not that this is not an interesting line of inquiry because it actually is but are you getting at what you think the overall point of this was is that part of what you're laying down here because i can't help but want to jump right in there i mean i'm trying to but i I think that's crucial i think whether or not we as as spectators are basically being put in this position of the protagonist of this film is important to, to figure out the rest of the argument and this blurring of realities and this uh, positioning of us in similar ways to particularly the blurring of realities, I think is got to, if there is an overall argument, that's, that's crucial. Like you said, the ship breaks the fourth wall. It is the only thing in color, which draws attention to it in two different ways. In addition to what I just laid out about the beginning and the opening of the film. And then the fact that the end sequence is him watching the film again. So we've started and ended with the first centipede or the human centipede, the first film within this, we have an actor from the first film who played a character in the first film. And in this film is herself as the actor, as the actor. So we have these, one reason that that might be done is to ground or to make this film seem much more realistic. And that for me also then puts the first film in really highlights sort of the polished Hollywood version of this. And that also carries over here where things are, I'm looking at the, uh, the still image of the shit on the screen, the duct tape and the pliers and the griminess that I talked about before. And lack of anesthesia, which is very of, noticeable in this film. Right. Absolutely. Just clunch you on the head if you're too much or he needs to do something or whatever. And those are choices that would not need to be made. We do not, this film could start, this film would not need to have that opening sequence where he's watching the first film. It would not need to have the post when he leaves the warehouse and watches the first film again. And it wouldn't need to have her return as an actress or as an actress playing a character. 
In a typical sequel, I think you could say, oh, well, she's the survivor. She's the final girl of the first one. Let's bring her back. That is one of the slasher tropes, is the final girl who survives the first brutality, and then the monster returns in whatever form, and she has to deal with it again. But here we're not doing that. If anything, this is the closest thing to this would be would be something I talked about in our Scream episode where he builds that second reality within the film to make Sidney Prescott more real because now she is being played as a Hollywood character, but I can't remember who plays her, Tori Spelling or something, in the, in the second film. So now she is a person because we know she's a person because she's watching an actor play herself. Or but, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Yeah, absolutely. Right. We're, right. We're Nancy Langenkamp, who's played, what, Heather? Is Nancy. Nancy, Heather Langenkamp, who plays Nancy, is now playing Heather Langenkamp. So, yes. And I have a whole argument how New Nightmare is, like a prelude to the, or a prologue to the three screen films. I'm a big fan of Wes Craven. Anyhow, I think this a very similar thing is happening here. And so I think to figure out this film, or to figure out the whole thing in general... It is crucial, and I think it's maybe obvious, but I still think it's worth saying that it makes the film structurally a film centipede. <laughs> it is tied to itself at the end point and the out point, the entry and the exit. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it is. It makes it, It's it, which for me, like that is something I could just totally geek out on, even if the rest of the film is not... not salvageable the fact that he was able to take a human centipede trilogy and make it a like film centipede by 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 just interjecting those two transitions i whatever i geek on that just having structure reflect the the overall story or the content is something i i just i gotta give him credit (laughs) i gotta give him credit uh i i think it's something that's my big long-winded tirade or whatever rants about why I started with that opening sequence and why I think it's so important and why I started there in response to your question about, okay, what's, what, what the hell is going on here? And yeah, we haven't even talked about the character. So somewhat akin to what I was saying in the first human centipede, where we were looking at all these things, like the fact that we had German and Japanese tie-ins to what was going on and what was going on with gender dynamics and, and why did they have the uh, subtitles versus not what were we supposed to understand and not understand. And I ended up leaving that conversation, that film and also our conversation about it, feeling like a lot of those things were put out there, but then not really used. And it wasn't clear to me whether they were put out there purely because in the process of creating the film, they thought, hey, like here's more stuff we can throw in. And even though it has it has probably reasons for being there in terms of like cultural baggage, like like you're seeing the reflection of gender dynamics, or you're seeing a reflection of maybe you know conceptions about different countries that might make people afraid or stoke some sort of emotion. But I wasn't sure that was intentional in terms of the film making an argument, so much as a reflection of yes, these things have societal connotations that are helpful to interject in a horror movie, if that makes sense. And so here, I felt that way a little bit in this film as well. And even with some of the things you're saying that I'm not sure whether I want to interpret them on surface level, like, yeah, okay, that's oh, cool is the right word, but I can see how they may have done that. And that's interesting. And the choices to make it black and white and the choices to only have the booby brown and, and all these things, they may have 
I don't know how to put it in the, in the, like you said, breaking the fourth wall and all of that, whether this was done for some sort of underlying argument or just done because it could be done. It's kind of an interesting way to present it, but do we feel like they actually had a, a point in doing so? I thought the answer was going to be absolutely because that's how I remembered it. But this time around, I really wasn't so sure. Uh, yeah. And I, I love that. All right. Uh, I'm going to have to run here for a second um, before I lose this. If nothing else, and I think there may be even another level, but I think that the overall argument and the point that he is making here or that he could be making here is he's really taking a shot across the bow at Hollywood in general. Because what you said about about throwing these things in that sort of seeming seem to have meeting and this cultural baggage. So by him making the structure of the trilogy itself a filmic a filmic centipede, I guess it's what or a film centipede, I guess I don't need that ick. There's enough ick in the film <laughs> <laughs> films. That means that he as the writer and director, the auteur of the trilogy, is is essentially the Dr. Hyder in the first film. His creation of the first film is this human centipede. Literally, he's making a film centipede. That means he is in this position and he's just getting off on his creation. Doesn't matter what it costs or what it says. And just what I was saying before of like, of the first film being this Hollywood polished, very sleek and, and really compared to this second film, this packaged glossy version of what I think you could argue would be the horrific actual way that this would play out, which is what I think this is supposed to be where it's real people who are, are in the sense of they're not pretty shiny glitterati from Hollywood and it's brutal and it's not clean. It's not pretty. It's not polished. So the first film is like, here's the way Hollywood would do it. And we're going to throw some things in that seem to have some meaning, but that's not really what it's about. Really what it's about is sort of a masturbatory, oh, look at my great creation. I, I can do it without necessarily thinking about why or whatever. And I'm doing it totally for myself. I'm not thinking about anybody. And all of that, I have to say, I love that it leads up to him fucking calling out Quentin Tarantino by name. You are the fucking problem. And I love that. I love that because Quentin Tarantino, I think, is absolutely the perfect example of that. He makes these pulp, exploitation, shiny Hollywood movies. My rants about Quentin Tarantino ever since Inglorious Bastards, which everyone thinks is so great, is he's taking the most horrific historical cruelty and problematic, terrible events of human civilization and he's packaging them up in these nice glossy consumable digestible happy little nuggets of cultural information and he's doing it because he's a privileged white man hetero director who can do this for his own masturbatory self-gratitude without ever actually thinking about what it does in our culture it's toxic it's disgusting he takes the holocaust he takes slavery and he in the under the pretense and the guise of of I don't know what of it being pulpy throwback exploitation edgy cinema and he puts it in this oh let's watch the holocaust for entertainment we can pretend that something happy came out of it and 
oh, there's some vengeance by a, a, a white woman and a person of color on the Nazis, and and there were some Jews who killed some Nazis, so it's all okay, and now we can just watch it for fun instead of what I think it should be, which is, especially with the Holocaust and or slavery or these sorts of historically, epically tragic events, they need to be treated in a way that has some sort of respect, some sort of acknowledgement of the level of atrocity that those things are. And if you want to make Son of Saul, which we'll talk about, or you want to make Schindler's List, and you want to make something that has some sort of other redeeming quality other than we're just going to use the the power, quote unquote, of the atrocities in order to give yourself some sort of pretense at at drama because you can't actually create characters of your own that have its their own interestingness without drawing on some historically epic revulsion of humanity, then the first film's what you made. Just Quentin Tarantino version of this. <laughs> and if you want to actually look at and and make it what is the reality where there is maybe not the reality, but if you want to look at and and present something that is horrible and is just sad and really troubled and abused people doing terrible things. And in doing all that, because he situates us as spectator, he's implicating us. He is implicating us. Now, the, for me, the big question, let me say one more thing. I'd love to hear where you want, what you thought, think about this. The big question for me then is, is it hypocritic? Is it hypocritical for Tom Six and Iona Six to do this? He's uh, a het white man too, as far as I know. He's married at least, so we know the hetero and the and the man part. Well, not that married necessarily means that, but anyway. Um, and then, so for me, the the crucial question is how do we sort out whether or not it's hypocritical for him to do this? And I guess the other question would be who is he to tell us, or who is he to implicate us? How about this? I don't think it's so hypocritical because while he's implicating us as the audience, he also implicates himself. He implicates himself because he positions himself as the Dr. Dieter from the first film. And and I also think that helps explain a little bit why he makes him so inaccessible and so devoid of joy. It's like, you can watch this, but what are you doing with your life? (laughs) <laughs> which I guess what we're doing is this, but at least I'll say this, even if it's hypocritical and even if it does implicate me, I love being implicated because I like being called by my own hypocrisy as hard as it is for me to do. Laura's excellent at doing that, by the way, which I appreciate hard as it may be sometimes. All that being said, this and just sitting and wallowing this is less offensive to me than Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards. Huzzah. <laughs> oh, I think there's, I think there's more, but I, I totally think there's more, but that's, you tied that together for me. I appreciate you letting me run with that to get it out. So first, I really like a lot of what you're saying and almost so much so that I think I got wrapped up in your little tirade there and I'm tempted to just let the question that I had that, that popped into my mind about 30 seconds into your tirade go, but I'm going to go back and try and find it because I think it's actually helpful in this conversation. What I was going to pose to you was something along the lines of whether it's any, okay. Okay. In the second film, he throws a bunch of awfulness out there again. And there's a difference between throwing awfulness out there, just throwing it out there 
and throwing awfulness out there. And then, like you said, pointing the finger at that awfulness at yourself, at society in some way. And now you're making a statement. Now you're using that awfulness to make some sort of argument about, hey, I shouldn't be doing this, or you shouldn't be doing this, or we shouldn't be doing this, or here's what's kind of causing this awful. And although I think that what you've pulled together there makes sense, I don't know if there's enough evidence in the film that that was his intention. And if it's not his intention, I think that really matters. Because if it is, then you're using this artistic medium as a way to comment on a lot of these issues that you brought up. And I think that's really useful and good. And, and again, what I, the first time around, got out of the second film. But on this viewing, I really felt like there were relatively few straws to grasp at. So it's not that I don't really like the argument that you just threw out there, but I want to look and see if we can really find enough evidence in the film to say that he was, in fact, trying to point the finger at himself and at Hollywood and even at Quentin Tarantino. And I love what you said there. Like, I love it so much. I'm tempted to just let it go and say that it was there. But I'm not entirely sure that it was, that it was, that that was the intent of the film. The intent of the film, I'll give you the devil's advocate version, which would be, I think, that the intent of the film was just to take what happened in the first film and make it worse, worse and more. And so we're going to have bigger centipede. We're going to have an even more real attack on people. We're going to take now the people that were actors, you know, if, if you were tempted in the first film to let yourself like to watch it and say, well, at least I know it was fake. At least I know those people were okay. We're going to take it in the second film and now try and bring it into reality world where suddenly even the actors are in danger. And we're going to not only have this horrible story of what's happening to the people being suffering, because you already saw that the first time around, you need more now. So now it's not going to be so much about them getting trapped in his basement, because we've already seen that. But he's going to have, you know, our main character, he's going to have a terrible life, Martin. And all the characters around him are going to be terrible. And we're going to bring in as much brutality as we can, even outside of the centipede. He's just like killing people left and right, starting at the beginning of the movie till the end. And that's going to somehow be, again, more. Just, just, just the exploitative spectacle worse. And I even think, if that's the case, you still might begin and end the film with the viewing of the first film. Because again, you're trying to make it worse, so you pull it out into the real reality. And that that's one way to do that. And also it's more, certainly, I mean, I guess this is a separate point, but I think it ties in possibly all the like full frontal nudity, masturbation stuff that he's got going on in this film is again, more extreme, more intense, more, it's more. And he added sex, he added sexual assault, he added, he added other layers of sex and awfulness. So, because if it's just the bad, and if it's not actually, if the film is not actually making the argument that you're making, which your argument is wonderful, but if the film is not making it, then the film doesn't get credit for that. I think the film then is essentially a replication of the first one just to a greater extent, a greater extreme. But if, it's, if it is making that argument, then I like it. Yes, and I think you're asking exactly the right questions, as you so often do, and which I so very much appreciate. So the evidence for it being critique on Hollywood would be, for me, would be the intro and the outro and him coveting the first film and her being an actor and a character and and really calling out Quentin <laughs> You're right. I need to think about whether or not my own bias and my own interest in having an occasion to rant about how terrible I think Quentin Tarantino has become may be clouding my judgment as to whether or not it's there in the film. Uh, Just to throw in a tiny bit of evidence on this category, might 
the fact that our main character, Martin, that he calls the agents of these girls and we hear those phone calls play into this at all. But we do hear a sort of very schmarmy kind of voicemails coming back from the agents. Also, I thought it was interesting when uh, the actress, I don't remember her name now, when she's in the car and she says, oh, have you seen The Human Centipede? Oh, I was really drawn to it because of the medical nature. That was very superficial and odd. I, odd which to is a, in there. Um, which you're saying is an implication of Hollywood, right? Maybe, and I don't know if it is one, but maybe. I mean, I feel like that's a little bit of evidence in that direction. Or at least that's where, those are other places where Hollywood as an institution is at least acknowledged. Yes, and... There's some of my notes. Yeah, I wrote that exactly about her as, oh, it's accurate. And, oh, I made them give me a massage. And and she is just totally vapid, what we would think of as as Hollywood actress. And she's so self-absorbed. And she's so wrapped up in her own world and so excited about being in a Quentin Tarantino movie that she's just totally blind. It doesn't matter that he doesn't say a word and he's this weirdo. Um, she's just, oh, whatever. But also interesting that she's playing herself. And so if she's really, maybe she's behind this this mass ideological statement that the film's trying to make, so she's going to sort of throw herself under the bus for that. Or maybe, just in line with what I was saying with the first film and just throwing a bunch of junk out there, maybe that's just, I don't want to say what she wanted to say, but maybe it is. Maybe that's just what she wanted to say about liking the first film. Or maybe, like, I don't know. if You mean as an actual person? I, maybe. I mean, she, she's playing her. She is. I don't, we don't know. They didn't let her just give a one sentence something. Maybe that's what she says. To, maybe that's her elevator speech on why she chose the human centipede. I don't know. I don't. Do we have any indication to, to doubt that? To doubt that was written as part of the script? I don't think we know either way. I mean, I think because they're sort of blurring this line between reality and not, we don't really know. Obviously, you would like to think that she, as a real person, would think it was creepy getting in the car with him. But it's also not a choice on her part to then let herself be depicted purposely i just don't think there's any way i don't think there's any way that so what you're saying is this could actually just be her and they set up camera in the van and let her ramble well no 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 but just that if she was constructed through the script to be vapid for the sake of some underlying ideological argument that is a little bit of a weird power dynamic from the sixes on her to then use her in the film playing herself as a way to show how empty she is. They already asked her to strap to somebody's ass for like fucking four hours. I don't feel like that's the worst of what they've... <laughs> but again, I'm saying that's maybe more of the same argument. There's just a pile of crap. It's not an, a strong ideological argument. It's just throwing out abhorrent spectacle and using people in doing so. Maybe, but at least... Sorry, my bar is still becoming... <laughs> still at, it's better than fucking Quentin Tarantino's recent movies. I was going to say, at least he's not relying on some sort of actual historical atrocity to accomplish that. <laughs> so, yeah, well, it's one Hollywood actress. She's, they've done worse shit. To, <laughs> they've been asked to do worse shit in their search frame. She could have said no to the role. I, even, I just still feel like there's something important there. I feel like there's something important about whether whether they really are making an argument or not. And, well, yeah. and if they are, what that argument is. And who they're using and implicating in the process of making that argument, like what sort of pile of awfulness they're putting out there slash asking the actors and whatever to be complicit in. It really matters whether they were getting at something 
whether they were, like I said, pointing the finger at somebody, whether it's themselves or us or other people or whatever, whether they're pointing the fingers at somebody and making some sort of moral statement or whether they're just like more spectacle. Let's pile it on. The opening sequence of this film, the first couple minutes, I think are are absolute. I'm beginning increasingly to think they're just absolute genius. There is a way to see this film and particularly the way that opening sequences is, is constructed as him undoubtedly implicating himself because he is essentially setting up an entire film that explores the idea of what if you take this film that I made that is this terrible creation and and you put it out in the world and it finds a home in the worst possible scenario. If you take this film I made for whatever reason, that could be his, could be some ideological argument, could be anything, and it finds a home and resonates with someone who's had you know, a history of abuse and is really alienated from society and it lives this miserable life and has this horrible home life and it results in that person then going on to commit terrible crimes by including that initial segment and then reminding you at the end, I created this, I put it out there, I have to accept the possibility that that this is essentially, it's a, what is the worst case scenario of me producing this film and putting it out in the world? This is it. This is the worst case scenario. It would lead to a copycat crime that is escalated and that is exploiting and taking advantage of someone who has all sorts of deep-seated problems, real problems from abuse and neglect and whatever else. And let's look at that and let's deal with it. And then I'm going to remind you at the end that this could, this very much could be exactly what I've accomplished as a byproduct or as a result of having made this film that is this really objectionable, cultural, uh, whatever spectacle by having made this spectacle. And I think that's, I think, I think there is enough there. Now, again, it's, is it, is that hypocritical? Okay, well, I'm going to point the finger at myself, but I'm going to do that in a way that is me making another film. For me, we can talk about that here, but it also ups the ante on, on does the third film carry it out? Do we get some sort of conclusion here? But so far, between the first two films and this film in particular, there is enough there. And, oh, I was going to say, there's one more piece that, that really makes me think that, and that is the prominence of mirrors in this film and the first film, where he's like, you, I'm going to hold the mirror up and show you what you're involved in. So we are people in the centipede. We're people who are watching this, and shitting it out mentally or through telling other people to watch it or whatever else it is. And we need to, we're being held up to a mirror. Like you should look at yourself. And when he presents that, that again, that opening sequence where we see him in the cage and the cage is essentially a movie screen that we're watching. We are, we're in that centipede. We're in the film centipede. We're part of the cycle, whether we like it or not, because we're still here watching and that would be really problematic, again, if he didn't also really... I don't think there's any other way a filmmaker could more... Maybe not any other way. It is a very powerful self-indictment to start the film and end the film, acknowledging 
to the audience that you are the cause and the inspiration for this character's atrocities and, and terribleness throughout the film. You are the author and you are, and you as an audience member should remember that we are all stuck in this loop together and he's part of it. And, and yeah, that, cause that shot when he's show, he's showing, he's got this fancy hand mirror that he's showing all the, all the people in the centipede to each other and what they're a part of. And then we get a shot on camera where he holds it up and he, that was a prominent shot. He looks at himself and he's, he's holding the mirror up. But, and again, that would explain like the fourth wall. Remember that you're still here sitting watching this. It's in the worst moments of it. In the laxative driven, eat shit storm of the centipede, in all that, you don't, you, I mean, it's funny, there's, there's so much distance, but then it's, there's colored poo on the screen. You're here. You, you can't, don't forget that you're sitting here watching this and, and involved in this process. It's not just them. It, it's shit stick coming at you too, and it's sticking on your screen too. I, I, the more I think about it, I, th I and this is exactly what I'm talking about, I think that's there. And we haven't even talked about the fact that the main character and all this like Freudian, it, it, there could also be, I think, really a prominent indictment of, of masculinity and the whole men as a tour's history of Hollywood in all this. Okay, hang on before you go there. Because I, I think I've realized what's, what's hanging me up a little bit around Ooh, this argument. Good. And that's whether the awfulness that's being presented in the first film and in this film is being presented as bad. If it's bad, if it's wrong, if it's something you don't want, then you're right. Putting his name at the beginning and the end and showing those credits and whatever, that's an indictment of him because it's like, like you said, look, I can be implicated for all of this bad stuff that happened. But because the second film is in a lot of ways just an escalation of the awfulness of the first film, and he made the second film as well, that if the goal was to just put out awfulness, and then he puts out more awfulness. And he, it can be seen as self-congratulatory. Like, look, I made this first film. Now I made this other film. These are both me. I made so much bad. That if you were, if you were watching it like Martin is to enjoy it, then it can almost be seen as navel-gazing in a congratulatory, I'm one-upping myself in terribleness. And that's what you all want, isn't it? Like, look at me doing a good job sort of way. Whereas... If it's clear that what Martin did was wrong, and I know that's a strange thing to say, like, well, he made a horrible human centipede and killed like 45 people by bashing them into the head. And we didn't even get to the fact that there's like a pregnant lady and didn't she step on her baby in the car and whatever that was, but tons of terrible stuff happened. But this movie, unlike many films, or I would at least say the first human centipede sets you up for this. And this is rare, I think, by the structure and content of the film and the fact that it really has very little morally redeeming anything. And I remember making that argument with the first film, too, that there's not much to hang on to. If you're there looking for the good or the message or the whatever, it's, it, there's very little in it. Because of that, you don't really get the sense necessarily that he's saying this is wrong. Like, is he showing it to you as a cautionary tale? Or is he showing it to you as a, here's more. I did it again. <laughs> you know? Your argument assumes that it's wrong. And I'm not saying it's not wrong, because obviously it's wrong. But does the film say that it's wrong, and does it need to? 
because if it doesn't, then the hypocrisy question that you're getting at, like the fact that it can be hypocritical, I think because of exactly what I just threw out there, that because it's not clear that the film disagrees with what Martin did, he's both getting away with doing the same thing he did in the first film even harder in the second film and even more. He's both accomplishing that and what potentially self-reprimanding, but we're not really sure. Like, can he have his cake and eat it too? By Yeah. I think you just much better elaborated some of what I was thinking when I was saying one of the key questions then is, is it hypocritical? Is he, is he trying to point the finger while also benefiting from, is, well, I'll play devil's advocate for once or for a moment here and say, is there anything in the film to indicate that it is self-congratulatory? I know that's a big question, but then the other question I thought was, you asked something about what's the intent and is it, is there not redemption in just implicating the, or how about this? I can't get this out. Pushing forward that question about what is, what is the possible impact of this, of this artistic or whatever this creation is of these films as we put them out into the world, what is our responsibility and, and, and what is, what may be the impact depending on who's watching it and why are we doing all this? Is that not redemption enough? Is that not important enough for you as a moral piece to justify or you don't think that it, like if it's there, it may be enough, but you aren't convinced it's there. I'm not sure if this is a, a tangent or not. So I'm going to throw it out there as a hypothetical and you can cut it if it doesn't pan out. But it's like if someone took a film of, say a sexual assault and put it out there to the world just like here this is my film that I want to show you it's shot very beautifully and that's what it is and then they made a second film with even more sexual assault that was about someone watching the first film and assaulting someone even more it's both more of the problematic thing that it began with and you could also say exactly like this film hey look but it's and I don't even know if they're saying that really but by, say, starting it with somebody watching the assault and closing with them watching the same assault, it could be commenting on the existence of that type of film in the first place or someone's moral implication in putting it out there. And that is both true, but also at the same time, again, doing just doubling down on the same sort of negative behavior. And I think it, in, it's important to look at the film and see whether it is actually criticizing what that the reaction it's stoking in society whether it's actually criticizing that reaction or whether it's just I don't say glamorizing exactly but just just using it for the same sort of spectacle excitement because this was in a sense just an escalated version of the first centipede right it was just worse it was just more and I think it's a little bit easier to detach from it because it's something that doesn't happen all the time to people so I, I think that's why I use the example of sexual assault because making a human centipede isn't something that seems likely in reality, you know, but is it okay to do that? Would it be okay if, if instead of a centipede, if it were an assault, would it be okay? And would this still be like a brilliant way to make that point? Or is the moral bar sort of higher where you really need to be coming in saying clearly, like, this is not okay. And I'm making a judgment because if not, you're getting away with, you're just doing the same thing you did in the first film worse. Again, absolutely the best question to ask with regard to all this Laura and exactly like you just said 
framing it as sexual assault to ground it in something that's not a human centipede is also precisely useful. And I think we talked about this very specifically with our I Spit on Your Grave episode. And the I Spit on Your Grave mirrors Archie version, not the whatever newer remake that's terrible. So in response to the question of if I make a film about sexual assault and then I make a sequel where someone, a character in the film, watches the first film and then proceeds to enact a bunch of worse or more sexual assault and I criticize the impact of that first film and this is all again by the same maker and I'm trying to use this second film to demonstrate here's here are the the really terrible negative impacts that my having made this first film could accomplish but at the same time I'm also producing more of that first film more of the sexual assault from the first film that led to this character in the second film doing these terrible things, uh, which is the cake and eat it too. It's like the weirdest cake and eat it too ever. But for me, the only real answer to that question is it depends on how it's done. And I bring up the I spit on your grave. In fact, both of the I spit on your graves because in Mirrors Archie's I spit on your grave, we watch several brutal sexual assaults but i recall very distinctly us both coming away with the argument that the film was done the how of the of the way the film was constructed it was done in a way that ultimately was critical of the sexual assault and the the conditions that and the masculine types of masculinity that that resulted in it and it was uh, respectful and empowering to the way the primary character, the woman who is the, the victim of all this or the survivor of all this. And overall, the film really made a powerful statement against the entire phenomenon uh, in a way that that was constructive. And the second film, the plot is is essentially similar it's a re- it's a remake i don't even remember who made it and i don't think it's well it probably is important only because in contrast to the first film we found it to be really a worst case scenario was the first one was kind of a best case scenario of here's a way to make a film about sexual assault that critiques it happening it critiques the people who perpetrate it it critiques the people who um, tolerate it and it offers agency and an empowering story to the woman who survives it. And in contrast, the remake was one that was exploitation and it removed the empowerment, it removed the critiques, and it really just reveled in the shock of watching uh, someone be repeatedly sexually assaulted. And in her vengeance, we got no agency and no redemption and no empowerment it was just a a travesty of filmmaking and i use those as bookends to argue that the question is how so i think we're back to this crucial question of does the film critique it and and how is the film constructed and is it constructed in a way where it's justifying producing more of the awfulness of the first film in a way to criticize presenting that awfulness while also presenting more of that awfulness. And that is a 
a heavy lift, I think is what you're saying. And I really appreciate you tying it back to our conversations on I Spit on Your Grave and, and the whole series of rape revenge films that we looked at, because I think that's, like you said, super relevant. When we, we held a really high bar for how things were shot and how characters were depicted and what emotional experience the audience we felt was supposed to be having at the time. And, and that's not to say that we can come to some sort of definitive answer on how things should be presented, but we, we seem to hold a really high bar on it needs to be clear that you're not glorifying this and that you're depicting it as terrible and that this is being used as a medium to be very critical of that experience. And in this case, I don't think that just the film opening and closing with self-reference, although that certainly lays the ground for the argument, I don't think that's enough necessarily to justify that argument when you look at, to me, my, my emotional experience being in it was that the whole interim of the film was very, very, very similar to the feel of the first film. And I was surprised by that this time around. I didn't expect it because I remembered this whole conversation. And I think going into it wanting it to be such a critique of itself, because that's the conversation we had coming out of it after the first viewing, I was surprised by the actual experience of it not feeling like a critique of itself. Not that, that the argument about critiquing this type of filmmaking isn't a super interesting argument, and it is. I just don't know that this film, that it does reach that bar in terms of being critical or just being further exploitative. And it really is hard. If you, if you think of it as a different type of you know, moral transgression that he's doing here, it's something that, that you can actually relate to in the world, and whether that's sexual assault or just anything that's more real, it does seem to change my perception of that a little bit. And it changes the gravity with which I hold that. And maybe you could say, well, that's a, a, a false line to draw because... He, they are actually putting out there something artistically that isn't an experience that people have had. So you're not going to have viewers who have been a part of a human centipede in this. But then they did enter sexual assault into it unnecessarily. They, did, you know, they had a pregnant woman. Why she was there and what that whole sequence was about with her giving birth to her baby and then I think stepping on it. They added in other things that do tie into the real world and were other types of atrocities that people have to experience and. Is it okay to show that kind of thing if you're going to make some sort of redeeming point? Maybe, but did they really make a redeeming point enough or were they just piling it on in the second one and then maybe or maybe not pulling together a reasonable argument for how this is a critique of themselves? Again, I agree with what you're saying. And I think that my, my inclination as a reply of more than just the intro and the outro and whether or not there's some sort of... Uh, justifiable critique or some critique throughout the film that justifies producing and, and laying out this much more of the awfulness of the first film is, I guess I'll phrase it as a question is whether or not there's enough additional content that is really about pushing us as an audience to think about what it is we're watching and what it is we're doing. Because I don't know if I want to compare this precisely or exactly to us, but on your grave, the Mirrors Archie version, but the one, a critique of something awful happening and being presented in film and whether or not the film itself is criticizing. It's one thing if within the context of the film, we see someone who is empowered and survives and there's violence that's that happens in a way that, that is, meaningful in terms of symbolically or literally 
were both killing these negative and, and bad aspects of people or ideas or whatever it is. There's another to there's be another way to construct a film where it really pushes the audience to recognize it within themselves rather than doing it vicariously through an actor that they are empathizing with. Can I jump in for a second? Yeah, I please. think you make a, a really good point. And one thing that seems then very relevant in the second film is that we are never put in a position to empathize with or understand or know any of the victims at all. So if this is meant to be presented as a terrible thing that he's doing, one way that could have been accomplished was by emotionally seeding us with some of the victims ever, right? If we were, because that was a crucial thing that we looked at in the rape revenge films was where we clearly on, where we as an audience were clearly on the side of the protagonist in this film, not only were we never, we weren't on their side. It would have been a very different film if we were, but we weren't on their side. We didn't know them. And the one character who carries over from the first film has what three vapid lines that that's our introduction to her. Well, I just laid out this, elaborate argument for why we identify with the protagonist here, Martin. And so I think exactly what you're saying is right. And I'm going to push back on that and ask, what if we are asked to identify with Martin because the idea is for us to ask ourselves and to identify not with what if we were to become victims, it's what if we are part of the problem? What if we, what if we have a little bit of Martin in us? And what we're doing is we're, what we need to do as uh, audience members is to recognize that there is a little bit of a Martin potential in us. And we need to think about what we're consuming, how we're consuming it, what we're viewing, how we're viewing it, and what that may contribute to in ourselves. That would be my pushback. I, I don't know if it's there, but, but there... Again, we're really getting it down into is the how is really crucial. And I, I guess I, I know you, I know it's, it's your turn. I appreciate it. But if if that happens and we believe and somehow we were to be convinced that I'm not totally sure either about it. But if we were to be convinced that that's what he's trying to do, he's, he's trying to say we are Martin. We are the ones watching these things or we have some little bit of that, at least within us. And in doing these things, it can encourage us to maybe have act on some violence or to act on some dehumanization. And we need to think about that within ourselves and, and, and just be introspective about that, hopefully in a productive way. That to me would be a really interesting idea because I can't think of another film that we have watched or off the top of my head where that is the strategy. I feel like the strategy is almost always through a vicarious empathy of a character and what they do and their interactions with other characters, those are the ways we we uh, are asked to be introspective and aware of what's happening. But so is it a problem then that a film that was taking the path that you're describing here would be indistinguishable from a film where we're meant to empathize with the protagonist because we're going to go through and enjoy this spectacle and enjoy what they're doing. That's exactly, again, Laurie, I love it. I mean, you are exactly the right question. And we start the film with him, I think, exacting, asking precisely that question of what if I made this film as this horror film, as this terrible and presented it, and it, it resulted in 
regardless of his, his intent, it resulted in someone who is watching it as joy, as maybe not joyful, but as an inspiration and as uh, sexualization. And I mean, we asked those very same questions and, and that's Ebert's infamous review of I Spit on Your Grave is, is what if someone watches this and gets off on it? And there are other, and he was in an audience apparently where there were men in the audience who were like cheering on the rapists or identifying with the rapists. And so you're asking exactly the right question of, of you and I may watch this and I don't identify with Martin. <laughs> I do think uh, for me, it maybe made my, made me ask some questions about why am I watching this and what are the impacts of cultural products out in the world and questions of viewership and meaning and all of these sorts of things. But what if there is somebody out there who sexualized and was inspired by the first film and now we have a second film and it's worse and we have then a third person who is even more inspired and finds and is jerking off to human centipede too. And, and okay. Oh, this is going to be good. And so then the question that I have is does this all actually happen or is this all just what happened in his mind while he watched the film because the end of the film, we go back and we watch the exact same thing. We pick up where the first film left off. And that's a crucial question because that brings us back to this idea that if he watched the first film, the human centipede of Martin did, and he imagined all this, and all this craziness happened and he felt empowered and he felt like he worked all this horrible shit out of his system through watching the film. And now he can just go back to being miserable or whatever, <laughs> you know, but without having done all this, then that accomplishes exactly something we've talked about where like with porn or with some sort of, some sort of violence of, okay, if you can get that tendency out through vicariously watching it on a film it, it is produced a positive because then you're not actually doing it out in the world. But if he, that raises that question and that is there, that's not a reach because we don't know that this all shit just didn't happen in his mind. And he was like, God, this is my fantasy. And now because of the human centipede, I watched it and I got to think that I had, I got to live in this world where I got to do all these things that I always wanted to do and work it out. And now I can go back to my life and I could not do any of that. I'm wondering, does that make it worse? Because again, <laughs> think... Oh, so, so... Well, yeah, think no, of the great. analogy of where it's a sexual assault. And now we've got the second film where it opens with the person watching the assault. They go through this entire movie where we enact a bunch of even, like you said, more, worse, whatever, variations of assault. And then at the end, the person is cleansed, or the film is somehow cleansed of its responsibility by saying, oh, that didn't really happen because they just watched it and imagined all of that. But it is, it, it, it is because if they watched it and imagined all of it, they can do that all the fuck day long as far as I'm concerned, so long as they don't actually go out and do it. But is there a responsibility in putting it out there on the screen and having the audience? The audience sat through the exact same experience, whether they think that was imaginary or not. And then at the end, can you just say, oh, never mind, wasn't a problem. Gotcha. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Does that somehow make the experience that you sat through no longer problematic? But wait, why is it problematic again? <laughs> I know that's I know that should be like a super obvious question, but what is the problematic? Because here? you're putting I guess media out there that's gonna that's gonna take people through the experience of someone being tortured for their own enjoyment, so that they can enjoy watching that happen. But that's just then a horror movie. 
Laura's looking at me with uh, frustration or something. My complaint with the first one was that it was a big pile of torture with no morally redeeming anything. And I think you did end up making a very similar argument to this in response to that. Like, well, maybe that's fine because people can just, if it's utilitarian for somebody or whatever, that's fine. And, and I was coming back with this argument of, yes, but in order to be art, in order to be allowed to exist in some sort of moral way, and I'm not big on dogma and I'm not big on like drawing lines ever in the world about anything. And so it's a lot for me to say. However, I think I want to at least say that in order for this to be allowed to be artistic expression. It has to somehow relate to humanity or morality, or it can't just be all awfulness. Just putting out all terribleness with no morally redeeming anything just feels like a scourge on society. I don't know. I just, I feel like there should be some, something. But the, but the morally redeeming anything is that this person who is miserable and downtrodden and abused can wash it and have a vicarious moment of joy and victory. That may have, is that how it ended? Cause that might be, you might be right now. Maybe he didn't actually do it. Did he kill his mom? Did he, and he was killing people left and right. And it was weird that he wasn't getting caught. So that would explain. But we go to this why. shot of the, the second half of the centipede mm-hmm. dead and we cut to black. We don't cut to black. We cut to the monitor within the frame on which he is watching and it picks up exactly where exactly where it starts from the beginning. Let's look at where credits are there. And it cuts to exactly the same place. This is in the beginning. So this could have all been just his experience of watching the film. That is exactly the same point. Okay, so first of all, that's really kind of cool. And maybe it is. Maybe it was that this was all something he imagined in watching the film. And we have more of a reason to that because he, we watch him watch the first film on Rewind. So this, the second film, could be what goes through his head when he's watching the first film. It could be. But I don't know if that makes it better or and not. And then here we are looking at him do it. So what if that... I hate to like belabor this, but I just feel like one no, more time no, we I have to run to through belabor this. it. Let's so, do it. Again, let's take it back to the analogy of a sexual assault because I think it's helpful because I think it grounds it in something less abstract. So you have a film that is just assault and you put it out there and that potentially glorifies it. Who knows what it stokes in people? Is it okay to exist or not? Whatever. That's, I guess, one question. You come up and you do a follow-up film and you start that with somebody watching it. You proceed to show a whole bunch of other, even more so, assault like you showed in the first film and then at the end you show that the person was actually just watching the first you know the film they never actually did any of this stuff and maybe you could say that the point you're making is that hey that first thing was okay because this person didn't actually do anything they just they got that those tendencies or those inclinations out through watching the film rather than enacting violence on other people Right. And so the argument that I was making was, is it okay actually to just present art? Can you call it art? That is just the depiction of, say, assault, say like a a terrible experience that people might go through and just put it out there and then do it again, even more, maybe potentially even doubling down on your argument saying it was perfectly fine for me to do that. Because look, it didn't create anything bad in society. Now, whether that's what they're saying or not, I guess is a separate thing. But is the existence, would that be okay? You know, we were very critical of say the remake. I spit the remake of I Spit on Your Grave, because they did depict sexual assault and they depicted these things in a way that wasn't problematic enough. 
what if you don't make it problematic at all? What if you just put it out there like, this looks like fun? Whatever, you don't, you don't problematize it at all. You just, you just... Like Quentin Tarantino does. Well, so right. So you just, whatever. You just show it and that's your art. Would you be willing to let someone off the hook if, if their film literally was a very beautiful depiction of assault and then a follow-up film where someone watches it, imagines much more assault, and then closes by essentially making the argument that it's perfectly fine to just put out a beautiful depiction of assault? If so, then why'd you hate the remake to I Spit on Your Grave so much? Because, I mean, they at least sort of made the argument that it was wrong. What if there's no argument that it's wrong? Is there no argument that it's wrong? I think the argument that it's wrong is... No, I can't say that. I mean, I was, you had the experience of it being wrong, so would I, if I watched a film that was just all assault. But as they are pointing out in this film, not everyone's going to have that reaction. And so if, if we see it the way that you're presenting it, then I think the point of the second film would be it's actually totally okay to just put something out there that is exploitative and, and sort of awful in this spectacle kind of way because anybody who wants to do that will probably just get it out of their system by watching this and then it won't harm society. Is that okay? I don't know, but I want to say first that regardless of the larger moral question, which is the more important question, I absolutely think that these films as indictment of... Hollywood still stands because I think you said it exactly right is what if you do that without any reflection or out any, without any indication that viewers need to be introspective and are part of this process. And there's a larger chain here and Hollywood generally, but horror even more specifically because it is what horror does, which is take some sort of awfulness and then escalate it. And that, but that's what Hollywood does too in terms of spectacle, right? Is, oh, here's a spectacle, whatever. Now let's make it even more so. And then we put it out into the world and maybe it's okay, maybe it's not. Generally speaking, you know, people watch these movies and we don't know what their fantasy is. Their fantasy could be something absolutely terrible or it could be something really wholesome and joyful, whatever. But regardless, I think that critique is there absolutely. Now the larger moral question... But see, I, and I, for me, I, I still, I, I'm, I'm falling on the side of justifying it because, because it asks those questions. It is this, these films have pushed us and have in multiple ways gotten us to question exactly what you, exactly the questions you just laid, laid out in ways that other films don't ever ask anything in the audience. They don't ever ask you. They don't ever tell you to actually think about what are the impacts of what are you're watching. And and like what you were saying, no, I don't, I won't let him off the hook. That's why I ranted about Quentin Tarantino and I'm still ranting about him is because he doesn't ever ask you to, to have, he doesn't ever, there's never any question of you need to think about this or you need to realize that you're watching a movie or you need to understand that, that somebody may watch this and have some sort of thing. I mean, talk about a shiny sexual assault and then you just go on about your film. That is Pulp Fiction. <laughs> that is absolutely Pulp Fiction. Is okay, we're gonna have the gimp Zed rape scene, and Marcellus Wallace gets to say a clever line, and then shit's forgiven, and we can just move on to the next thing. You don't need to think about what it means that people watch that and what impact that has, and you can just dump it out into the world, and it's edgy and catchy and neat and whatever. But this, this is asking those questions, and it may be doing it imperfectly, but it's a fuck lot better than. Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> How many times can I say that? I hope Quentin, I hope you listen to this and you realize that you've become a terrible person. 
Is it asking the questions, though, or are we asking the questions? I feel like if we sat down and we watched just a... Uh, I'm right. No, I'm right back on, like, <laughs> pornography and how this lies. Let's say we watched a pornographic film that was just depicting rape in a way that, presumably, whoever was watching it was supposed to, whatever, gawk at in some manner, enjoy, not enjoy. It doesn't maybe tell you how to view it, but just does that, right? Th- those films exist. And... One may argue that, well, that's fine, because exactly as the second film maybe is getting at, it's okay, because it's just watching it. It's not actually doing it, and that's a good thing. But I think that's why it comes back to this larger question of, like, is this art? Is this film? Or is this just us reacting to the world? Like, you and I having an interesting conversation around looking at something exploitative. Not explo- I don't know what I mean. But, like, if we had sat down and watched something that was just assault, and then we watched another thing that was assault bookended by someone watching the assault and doing a whole bunch of other assaults. Is that a, a brilliant artistic statement being made by the part of the filmmaker? Or is that just something that, again, maybe, who knows, if you want to say, you know, if, if there's consent among the people who made it, and as far as what it does to society, that's like a whole conversation. Like, we, we're raising this question. We've never even tried to answer it. And I think you and I have tried, and I don't think there's an answer we're going to stumble upon in the next hour and 45 minutes, you know. But... Is that, is that a brilliant piece of filmmaking or is that just us having an interesting commentary on the world, which is that, is this okay or not? And, and the reason I'm saying it seems worse potentially to have it bookended that way is that this isn't just pornography. This isn't something that's just being laid out clearly as like, here, this is here for you to enjoy yourself. And then we can still have a question of, is that okay? Is, and I don't even, I don't know the answer. If you make a film that just depicts rape, are you encouraging more rape or are you actually making it less likely? I don't know. I can kind of see an argument either way. I don't know how freedom of speech and whatever should play into that. And you've got consent among people doing it. And so you've got a whole pile of questions. I'm not even trying to lay down an argument on that. But I think my my real visceral revulsion at this is that can this person be held up as an artist who just lays this out there? If they're really trying to make that argument and make us think those things, maybe. But I do think that you and I would have this exact same conversation if we were just exactly watching a pornographic rape video, why we would, I don't know. But like, if we were, it would stoke the same conversation. And I don't think that means that it was a brilliant piece of filmmaking. I think it just, that's an interesting question about the world. But like the person creating this film, like they still, let's say got away with, they still just doubled down on putting that same type of spectacle out there again. It's just like some sort of pornography or something devoid of any sort of moral whatever it's not like they're not making you a clear message or telling you this or that or here's how you should feel they're not making you associate with the victim in a way that like I spit on your grave did where suddenly it does feel like you're meant to leave that experience being like reprimanded in a way they're not doing that at all they're just throwing it out there as spectacle and I don't know that that's like a, a brilliant artistic thing to do they are they're throwing it out as spectacle and telling us we're not a victim we're the perpetrator but they're not telling us whether that's good or bad. And because they're not giving us any indication that it's bad to be the perpetrator, I don't see how this is different than just watching, like I said, a pornographic film that glorifies rape. It's the same thing. I'm going to go back to the only answer I think there is, and that's a strong statement, is the question is, how is it done? And for me, I, it is done through not just the intro and outro. I don't want you to dismiss the other pieces about breaking the fourth wall and the use of color and him being silent and... And we haven't even talked about some other pieces, which I still want to talk about if you have any energy left, but for a, for a stopping, for a pausing point is the one way would be just to not make anything. For me, that's just a, 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 a abnegation. 
if that's the right word. That's just an abnegation of, of responsibility of, of dialogue. Just to not do something is just a, it's an unreasonable thing. And it is, it is calling upon a very old idea that not participating is, new, is neutrality. And I fundamentally disagree with that. And I'm not saying that you agree with it, but to just not say anything, I still go back to my, the, the phrase from Howard's in, there is no standing still on a moving train. Like, the shit is happening. Not doing anything, you're being complicit. So by putting something out there that raises questions, yes, you are going to have potential for good and potential for bad. So the only question for me is still the how. And for me, the more I think about it, it's been three times I've talked about it, and that's fine. I can still be wrong. I can still be wrong. But for me, there is enough here that I do think it is it is a work of genius that he has done this in a way, and, and for me, the how is effective enough to accomplish this question of what is the moral responsibility of, of watching and being a participant in this film centipede of cultural awfulness that we revel in and and enjoy in some way. And I will add to that that I think I think that as much as anything helps explain or those two things work in conjunction with making the film inaccessible. Because for me it making the film inaccessible for all the reasons we've talked about means that while we're participating in this it, it doesn't ever really let us, or the film tries to, again, I understand that it can't be perfect. There's no perfect in, in how somebody's going to receive the film. But by forcing that, or by pushing that distancing and that inaccessibility, it prevents us from fully empathizing or being vicariously participating in what Martin is doing. Rather, what we're doing is we're, we're forcing it or we're pushing this liminal, liminal position where we understand that he's a protagonist, but we're not really supposed to identify with him and empathize with him. And so we're in that way, we're situated and we're reminded that we're spectators. And our spectatorship is what the film introduces us with, which is, which is what is the problem? And, and I, we need to think about what does it mean that we're watching this and that these things may inspire these terrible thoughts in either ourselves or other people. I know me just feeling it is not enough, but again, I, I would love to see you convinced and that, and I think talking about what the actual content of the characters in the film is, is going to help us sort out. And I will still grant absolutely that I could be wrong, that, that the film is meant to be, I think this is right. The film is meant to be a, a cathartic release. So if there's anything to redeem these sorts of films that would make them morally justified, it is that they can provide a cathartic release for folks who are otherwise would not have one. Maybe. And I, I think one thing that you said in the span of all of that stands out to me probably is the best argument in favor of what you've been saying. And I don't know if you said this or I just thought it in response to something you said, but that we're in the position of identifying with Martin, but Martin is really inherently repulsive. It would have been a different film, and I think my argument would hold a lot more water if Martin was powerful and dynamic and compelling and you wanted to be Martin. 
just as in terms of the actor and the character and how he carried himself. And if you could enjoy being in Martin's shoes, that, you know, I, I was saying that there's no place in this film that tells us is what he's doing good or bad. And it, there isn't really, but I will say that it's a struggle, even if you want to enjoy this, it's a struggle to put yourself in Martin's shoes because Martin is just gross. What he does, what he, they make him sweaty and they dress him in ways that just accentuate physically how he looks. They, the, his mom walks in at some point and says, oh, did you shit yourself? He smells bad. He, everything about him, he doesn't talk to people. He doesn't have any sort of charisma. He's mentally slow. He's, you know, everything about him is problematic. Is anti-Hollywood. And so even just more so than that, it's not an experience you would enjoy. And so by putting you in his shoes and then making him somebody who shoes nobody wants to be in, that is at least a bit of a, a reprimand on you wanting to fall into his like on my argument that this is just more spectacle and people might enjoy it in the same way. Dieter, at least in the first film, maybe you'd want to be Dieter if you if you were drawn to this kind of thing. I mean, he's not statedly not someone you might want to identify with if you, whatever, wanted to make a human centipede, if that was kind of your thing, you know? But I think, Martin, no matter what you want, you're not going to be hanging, you know, teen idol pictures of Martin up on your wall and making a scrapbook of him. He really isn't a compelling character. And so that maybe is a decent argument that putting you in his shoes is actually meant to be like, hey, look at yourself, you're this. And even if you found him, I just want to add one thing to that. I agree with all of what you said. And even if you found him attractive, he may be not one to judge who people like or don't like. But even if you do, we also know that he's unhealthy, both mentally and physically, particularly with the asthma. He's just generally like incapable well, so in every aspect, yeah, they make in a point to say that like whatever sense you might perceive him by, they make a point to make that as unappealing as they can. Right, right, absolutely. And, and I just want to bring up the asthma thing because it's so important. And like, he, in the sense of even what he wants to do, he can't really do. Or oftentimes he's interrupted because he's just, he doesn't have capability. And like you said, in contrast to Dieter in the first film, he's not obviously objectionable or whatever or presented that way he's a surgeon he's got a nice house he's got art and he's got he's a fine looking person and he's thin and and capable he has physical capability and and mental acuity and all those sorts of things so there are much more valuable enviable qualities so can we take a moment and then i want to talk for just a little bit more about one other piece. Yeah, I think we should just about call it. I mean, I, I think we've raised we, a lot we, of really good questions. We, we got to do one more piece. great optimism that this last piece uh, we will find worthwhile. Okay. Okay. So I just laid out this argument that what justifies this film and the second film are this potential, are two things. Is this asking us as audience folks and pushing us in the, into a position where we need to reflect on what we watch, 
how we watch it, what the impacts of it may be for us and other people. And then potentially the other real redeeming quality could be that someone who is in a position of Martin as a worst case scenario, miserable life, unhealthy, otherwise unappealing in all ways, as you said, could watch something, even though you and I might find objectionable, and through that have a vicarious experience of joy or satisfaction, however repulsive it may be to us. And he does very much have that moment of joy when he creates a centipede. Okay. That all being said, it then makes it very interesting to me that about the only other character in the film is a psychiatrist. So, because supposedly psychiatry is this mental therapy whereby someone who has been abused and is, and is unhealthy and is, and is in a really miserable position can have some sort of healing and joy. And in this film, the doctor, who is, I guess, both a physical and a mental doctor, because he also brings him his Ventolin, right? And so the, the, the character who is the symbol of the sciences of, of medicine and healing is part of the exploitation. And he is the one who is, who is a rapist or would like to be a rapist. And I found the shot where he takes the male gaze for, to Martin. So we get this pan of Martin's body from the perspective of the doctor. That's this really bizarrely like sexualizing. Well, it's not bizarrely. It's done all the time with women in, in Hollywood films, but it's this pan top to bottom of admiring his body. And so in the film itself, the, the symbol of the sciences of healing are themselves perverted and corrupt and also toxic and are unavailable to Martin. And so what he has for therapy or for some therapeutic release is this film. So there is a best case scenario in the film of when everything else is cut off, he can watch a film and have a moment of release and joy. And there's the worst case scenario of that release and joy could be horribly despicable or I don't even know what you, however you want to characterize building a human centipede in a warehouse. And all of that within there somewhere. The second time I watched this, I remember trying to figure out all this Freudian shit, and I don't really want to do that. But we also get this key piece of a centipede is a phallus. And, and he has all this sexual dysfunction, and, and having been abused, sexually abused, and other forms of abuse, but particularly sexually by his father, his mother is on his father's side, is not regretful. She, she is still berating him for putting his father in prison. So we know father's guilty of the abuse. He has no therapy or no release from his family. He has no friends. He is entirely cut off from any other sort of means of joy. And he can't get off, or really uh, much of the film is about him getting off or trying to get off. So he has this centipede. So he has no... So he has, an, he has a, a penis that is ineffective, that is essentially useless. And he has a centipede that is extremely potent. And that centipede, when it's released, 
But when he's not, when he releases it, when he's fed up to the point of uh, whatever, wherever his breaking point is, the centipede kills his mom, or at least hurts her to where he can kill her. So he's fucking his mom with the centipede. If you take the centipede as a phallus, we know the centipede is a phallus because they say it specifically in the film. How a centipede ever got to be equated as a phallus is creepy and weird and beyond me. That's something I've never heard of or thought of as a phallic symbol other than in this film or in these films. And so then he's taking and he's building a literal or a, a human centipede that is arguably then a giant phallus. So he's absorbed in like trying to enact his own masculinity and that masculinity is violent and, and rape prone and cruel and it is ultimately the woman who smashes the cage and she rapes him with the centipede. So he is, ends up raping himself or she, she ends up raping him with his own phallus. Uh, and that's what tears him out of this. And I guess for me, I just want to one spell that out. But two, if we're talking about, does this really implicate Martin and, and condemn him. No, he was not stapled and duct taped into a human centipede, but he was raped with the centipede and uh, his phallus was destroyed or he had to destroy his phallus again. It would have been nice if she survived, but she didn't. And I think that is pretty condemnatory, condemning. I think that's pretty condemning of of his whole fantasy and his whole thing. Um, I hate to complicate this further, but if that was his own fantasy, if that revenge was actually enacted in his own head, that gets another layer of weird that I don't know <laughs> if we want to go walking down that road I, right now. That's one road but, I don't actually necessarily want to rock down. But maybe it's his fantasy gone awry, or maybe it's... How about this? Here's an argument is that, okay, in his fantasy, as he's watching the first film, he accomplishes this vicarious masculinity and reclaim reclamation of his phallus and he gets his moment of joy but it is unsustainable and it all comes crashing down and there is an argument there that that would mean that it's implicating the first film because it is unsustainable and it does end up resulting in this and it may be as long as we're way out in the end of weird it could be his fantasy to be raped by a centipede that could be but it, it certainly wasn't presented as though that was the joy. The joy was, or the, the thing was, he finally got to, when he was raping the end of the human centipede with this barbed wire or razor wire around his cock, he was able to orgasm. And then he had this moment of joy, but as soon as he orgasmed, like, it all went to shit. And it was before that when he had his moment of joy and there was a little bit of music and he got to laugh a little bit. Or when that was when they were shit, all shitting each other, and he had his sort of squeeze box of centipede. Um, but I guess for me, the crucial part, which really what I want to raise, is the that component of the logistics of the film where he is entirely powerless and entirely cut off from what we would, I think, present as other means of some sort of therapeutic or helpful release: medicine, family, neighbors, friends, alienating work. Is none of these, and so he's pushed into film. And maybe there's an argument there that I don't know what that could be saying. That could be saying a few things. It could be saying that films are escapism, 
that are is okay. It could be saying that films are escapism that's not okay. It could be saying that what we should do is even people that, or maybe especially people that are are in situations like he is, we need to offer them something other than movies so that they're not so alienated and disaffected and excluded. Um, but it certainly seems relevant, and I want to bring it up because when we're talking about perhaps the rede- redeeming quality of the film is whether or not it can offer some vicarious escape and joy for someone who would otherwise have really either just be super alienated and or have terrible tendencies. The fact that all of these other means of therapeutic release are excluded and condemned and presented as as really terrible in the film is important or seems important. I think it does. And I think to, to speak to your point about the ending with him in the centipede and I don't think he was meant to enjoy it, but I think even if that was his fantasy world, it would be important then that even in his fantasy, he was unable to see himself as somebody who would actually do this because that could be representative of the fact that he actually wasn't going to go out and do it in the real world afterwards that yes, maybe it stoked all these fantasies, but at the end of that fantasy, he realizes that this isn't something he can actually do. And whether that's for moral reasons or practical logistical reasons, we don't really know, but I think that that could be meaningful and important. I like everything you're throwing out there. I really do. And I, I'm having a little bit of a, again, you need to get the audio clip of Peeping Tom and your dad. Oh. And, and I'm not saying that extreme, but I'm saying this is definitely one of those cases where I really like your argument. And I really like what you're saying about all of this. And I think maybe, maybe I'm willing to get on board that some of it was there and some of it was intentional. I wouldn't be entirely surprised if this was one of the experiences we had where you know, we're at the screening for something and, and you ask some brilliant question, tying it all theoretically together. And they're like, I don't know. We just thought, I mean, I was surprised because I expected the film to make a stronger ideological argument that was, that was clearly there. Like they were clearly making the argument and it was presented in a much weaker way. I guess I'll say if it was there, it was presented in a way that was much, much weaker than I remembered the first time around. And I think everything that you're tying together is exactly what we talked about the first time around with this. And I think it's really really interesting questions. All of these are incredibly interesting questions. Whether the film intentionally was as brilliant as your argument is, I I don't know. And then I get into this whole train of thought along, like, does it matter what their intention is versus what they produced and which is really important. I kind of feel like if they were sitting here and they were on board with all of this and they were making these arguments, I might be inclined to let it slide and say, okay, I, maybe it really was making this great point and that's good. and, And in whatever sort of I don't know why I get to make the proclamation on this, but like maybe it is art and it should exist and it's, it's worthwhile. But I don't know. I, I'm, I'm unconvinced because I think with this type of spectacle, the bar is high in showing that you really mean it. And, and I think if you had say crafted this film and this was your argument and you were sitting here having this conversation with me, I would be pushing you on ways to make that a little bit clearer in the film. What would you do? Give me an I know. And, and I, I was thinking about that. Like I, I don't, no, off the top of my head, we could, I guess, try to run down that road. Um, but trying to find ways, I, this is sort of a weird tangent, but in, um, I don't feel at home in this world anymore, which I loved. But one thing that was cool was that it was about, a, it had, I think, a clear ideological point it was getting at, and it was running you through this question throughout the film. And it gave very clear, I remember talking to Isaac about this afterwards and, and saying that it was cool how they had so many signposts. There were places where they just clearly nodded at you, like, yep, you're on the right track. This is this is what we're talking about. 
And there were many of them throughout the film and they weren't big, but if you were paying attention to the argument, they were because they stood out like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Like I'm, I'm with you on this. And I think with something as viscerally awful as what is being presented in this film, I would have appreciated more signposts. And I think what you're saying could be there and it's a cool argument. And, and this whole conversation has been really interesting. And so it's not, I mean, because it caused us to have this conversation, that's really great and worthwhile. And I don't know how much of the credit for that lies on the film and how much of it lies on us, honestly, but it's all interesting stuff. I, I would like it to have been on board with it a bit more. We are pretty great. Well, yeah. <laughs> but that said, I just, I want to applaud what you just said, because I think the argument you tied together for all of this is great. And the film certainly raised all those questions. Like I said, whether, whether they had that intent, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, maybe somewhat. I, I actually think I've, I've come around a little bit in this last little piece, largely because I didn't quite realize how much we might not want to be in the shoes of Martin. Just by the, because of the fact that they made everything about him. On every, done, every sort of measurable way, they made him not, not up to whatever standard you might apply. Like you said, he's not intelligent. He's not clean. He's not physically capable all of these things that make you not He's want to be horrible life. He has a horrible childhood. Right. He is, he, is, he is an abject character. He is a miserable character. So that does help in terms of the, my first argument, like you're just piling more spectacle upon spectacle. It, it certainly helps that he's not glorifying this whole thing. I don't know. Our conversation was interesting, but I did leave the film the second time being disappointed that this argument wasn't there much more than... It felt minimal to me compared to what it could have been. And I know you're right. The obvious follow-up question is then what would you do? And I don't have anything off the top of my head. And I, I kind of feel like we've gone on about this for long enough that maybe we should just call it there. And maybe other people can think about that. <laughs> but I think things could have been done. I think. I think if I thought about it, I could come up with some that would have made that a little clearer throughout if that was really their intent. Having said that last piece, I feel like I'm okay pausing. And because I know we're going to revisit all this in the third one. We still, got a, we still got a third piece. That I haven't seen. Now <laughs> that I don't want seen. to. The second, I thought the now second. you don't want to? I just thought. Now I, you should want to, like, triply. I guess so. I thought, I thought the <laughs> second one, I was going to be thinking interesting things through the whole film because I remembered it doing that to me. And it did the first time, but I think that was, again, our discussion that made it so interesting. I, the film itself was just horrible to sit through. Again, it was basically the same experience I had with the first one. So I'm not super thrilled about watching a third one, but I am thrilled about seeing where our conversation goes after it. I will not hide or shy away from my disappointment that I was not able to win you over Peeping Tom style. I do appreciate that you have found some more appreciation or you could see that there, there are side posts, maybe not enough or as clear as you would like them to be or that would win you over convincingly. But as you probably tell, I, I am convinced, and whether or not I just talked myself into it, because I think it makes me, it's a neat argument, and I like making it, or, I, I, no, I really do, I really do think it's there. I think it's, I'm at a loss for words for how interesting I think it is that amidst a film that is, I, I like you said, I found horribly awful to watch, they were able to, for me, wrap and tie all of this through the film. There were enough signposts for me, and that may be because I was 
more attuned to looking at them, having really closely worked through the film at a different time. But anyhow, yeah, I, I'm really excited about the third film. <laughs> I don't know and, if I... And I'm very curious because you haven't seen it. So you don't have expectations now. No. So first one you just thought was horrible, wholly without value. This one you're kind of on the fence. So the third one would need to really be great to pull it all together for you, yeah. I'm even more on the fence because I think the first time I was all on board with the second one and now I expected so much more <laughs> because of that. I don't know if our audience actually knows the Peeping Tom story and I didn't really tell it, so I just made a reference to you, but I feel like you should at least. I, I, what I want you to do is go back and find that clip of your dad because I think you've got it somewhere. Yeah, I think we do it too. Was, Marshall pulled together the best, just the best argument for the whole movie and explained all of it and what everything symbolically meant. And it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. And I was completely on board. And I started off not really liking the film very much. And I thought you just, you pulled it all together in that wonderful, wonderful monologue of yours. I don't even know if we have anymore, which is unfortunate. If you can find the tape, you should. And then Marshall's dad, who was sitting at the table with us, said something. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but something along the lines of like, nah, that was just a piece of shit. And it was really funny <laughs> really funny <laughs> and Marshall sometimes has a tendency to do that to come up with these really brilliant ideas and there have been other times where we've been at screenings of films and then he's lobbed a question like that at the director or the writer or something and they will look a little bit baffled or like that was clearly not their intention at all and they didn't have these wonderful aspirations to make this great cohesive symbolic point and it's unfortunate because sometimes I think your arguments are better than the films themselves. <laughs> um, I'm not saying that's necessarily true here. I'm really, some of, some of, I, I was placed on the other side of the argument and I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit because I expected to be wholly on board with where you are. And I was surprised that I wasn't. I, like I said, I'm, I don't know about surprised, but I'm a little bit disappointed. I don't know whether it's because as a teacher or just generally, it's a very fulfilling and happy occasion when I am able to, for myself, and even more so to have my great skeptic friend, partner, person, Laura, affirm that my argument holds water. Um, that's a, that's, that's uh, as great. A, I, I enjoy that moment in life or those moments in life as much as I enjoy anything. I, I thought I might have be there with this one, but that's okay. We still got to... <laughs> I'll give you that it we'll might see. be there. We'll see. And uh, we'll come back on the third one. And if you're in Laura's shoes, we hope you at least enjoyed the conversation, even if you're not wholly convinced. If you have been convinced that this is a work of masterful filmmaking and genius, then <laughs> you're super cool. <laughs> and hopefully you'll come back for the third one. And if not, maybe you'll at least start listening again when we move on to something else. Um, all right. This is the Collective Nightmares podcast. My name is Marshall. And Laura. And horror films are our collective nightmares.
Let's look at where credits are there. Oh, whoops. I skipped porn. <laughs> oh, the timing on that was just absolutely impeccable. <laughs> Like once you've done this, like where where do you go? What's what's the next step? <laughs> After the human set of your trilogy, yes. Romantic comedy. Romantic comedy. Tom and the Yona Six. <laughs> You're coming back, right? Yeah. Thank you. We love you. Just sent me over the edge, and then the, and then the, and then the, and then. Let's see if I can say "and then" one more time, and then the the. Uh, so what is onanism? Isn't onanism? So onanism is defined as masturbation or coitus interruptus. Oh. Wait, did it say that he had that? No, but the Six's new film is the Onania Club. Oh. Yeah, didn't I send you that little headline? I don't... Did you? Yeah, Alex, Alec Baldwin is apparently what? a fan. Really? He just did an interview with them. Really? Because they have this new film coming out, and the teaser trailer... The, just the teaser trailer already has people, like, flipping out. Oh, dear. Oh, dear is right. <laughs>